Today's episode is proudly sponsored by the Rising Tide Mastermind. Each and every year, the Rising Tide Mastermind gets together in Atlanta for a live event. This is one of the most anticipated events within the Rising Tide Mastermind. Normally, we have a Zoom call each and every week, but this is where we all come together and we become better friends. We learn more about each other and we help each other with their issues. It is my favorite thing and I'm sure it is going to be your favorite thing to look forward to if you were a member of the Rising Tide Mastermind. That could be a possibility to find out if the Rising Tide Mastermind is right for you and you are right for the Rising Tide Mastermind. Go to scalinguph2o.com forward slash mastermind and you can schedule a 15-minute call with me to find out more. Hello, Scaling Up Nation. Trace Blackmore here, your host for the Scaling Up H2O podcast. And Nation, happy former Industrial Water Week. Of course, we said goodbye on Friday to our sixth installment of Industrial Water Week. And it was so cool being able to celebrate in person with all of you at the Association of Water Technologies Conference. Thank you to all the people that came up and introduced themselves to me. Thank you to all the people that I've met before that you came up to say hi. And of course, Thank you to everybody that gave me a show idea, that gave me a guest that they thought would be great for the Scaling Up H2O podcast. We are the Scaling Up Nation, and the Scaling Up Nation is making sure that we have the best podcast out there, and that, of course, is Scaling Up H2O. Now, for all of you that are pre-planning Industrial Water Week for next year, that's going to be October 7th through 11th in 2024. That's going to be the seventh time we have celebrated Industrial Water Week. So go to your favorite party supply store, get all your Industrial Water Week decorations on clearance right now because of course, Industrial Water Week's over. They're not gonna sell those things, so they're probably 90% off. So make sure you're taking advantage of all those sales out there and put on your calendar for October 7th through 11th. Industrial Water Week is always the first full week in the month of October. Nation, something else you want to mark your calendars for is November 9th, we are having our next hang. So many of you I have met on the hang, and the hang is where we get together as an industrial water treatment community over a Zoom call. And I know what you're thinking. Oh my gosh, Zoom is so overdone. I'm so bored with Zoom. Well, that's not this call. This is a networking call. You will meet people that you did not know before the hang, and the people you meet may be able to help you with the problem that you have, or the problem you haven't even experienced yet, but when you do experience it, you're going to remember somebody you met on the hang, and you're going to be able to get that answer. So mark your calendars for November 9th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, and you, of course, can register for that by going to scalinguph2o.com forward slash hang. Once again, that's scalinguph2o.com forward slash hang. 
One of the things last week that people kept coming up to me and thanking me for was creating our events webpage because people have been able to go to our events page and see everything that's going on in the world of industrial water. Well, I take credit for it, of course, but that is the great team here at Scaling Up H2O. And if you haven't been there, that's real easy to fix. Go to scalinguph2o.com, go over to our events page, and everything you want to know about what's coming up is going to be on that page. And you have a link that will take you straight to register for whatever it is. And you also have a link that will put it directly in your calendar. My team thought of everything. And of course, they are thinking about you. So go over to scalingup.com and then go to our events page. We're gonna have so much more than what I'm gonna talk about right now, but something I do wanna talk about, because I am so incredibly excited about it, is the International Water Conference is taking place November 12th through 16th at the San Antonio Marriott River Center. So if you are in San Antonio, Texas, I would love for you to come to the International Water Conference this year because I have the honor of being the keynote speaker for the International Water Conference. And I am so excited about this. You know I love talking about this industry. Well, now I get to do it as a keynote speaker in front of the International Water Conference. And I've just had such a great time working with the planning team for the International Water Conference and how we can do things with the Scaling Up H2O podcast to let people know what's going on that week and within their organization. So if you want to learn more about that, go to scalinguph2o.com, go over to our events page, and we will have everything that you want to know. And I hope I see you there. There's going to be a lot of people there. I hope one of them is you. And I always enjoy talking with listeners of the Scaling Up H2O podcast because we are the Scaling Up Nation. Nation, one of the things that I have had the privilege to do over the last four years is I started a group called the Rising Tide Mastermind. And it has just been amazing to welcome all of the people within the Rising Tide Mastermind. We're well over 70 members strong. We've got a waiting list for our next group that's getting ready to launch. And so many people are joining the Rising Tide Mastermind because they've learned that in this industry, it can be difficult to do it by yourself. They've also learned that forget this industry, life is just hard to do it by yourself. So we're making sure that we have our own personal board of directors where we are getting further, faster while we're having more fun. And we're doing that while we are just knocking all sorts of goals out of the park. So if this sounds like something that you want to learn more about, by all means, you can go to scalinguph2o.com forward slash mastermind, and we'll have all that information for you. And perhaps you listened to episode 325, which was just a few weeks ago, 
where we gave you an insider's look of exactly what we did at this year's live event. Now, one of the things we do with the Rising Tide Mastermind is we bring everybody together here at Atlanta, where we are based, and we get together and we support each other. We normally have activities we do. We have speakers come in. We have all sorts of workshops, and we really fortify each one of our teams. And we've got over 70 members. So that's where members can meet other members. And it is one of the best weeks of the year. Well, this past year, as you know, if you've listened to episode 325, the assignment was we read TED Talks by Chris Anderson, the CEO of TED. And within that, he taught us how to do a TED style talk. Now, Nation, I do not say this lightly, and I do a good amount of public speaking. TED Talks by Chris Anderson is the best public speaking book I have ever read. And I have taken so many things after reading that book. And when I teach, I use things from that book. When I speak with people, I use things from that book. And it really helps me get my message across a lot easier. And the whole idea of a TED-style talk is you are taking an idea that you have within your head and you are syncing up everybody else's head with that idea. It's just sharing ideas. And think about all the things that we know. There's no reason we can't all do TED-style talks and share the information we had. Well, that was the assignment that we had back on episode 325. And you got to hear that. And I got some great reviews where people really enjoyed that episode. It was very different from our normal scaling up episode, but people really enjoyed and they were inspired from episode 325. Well, something else we did at the live event this year is we had somebody come on stage that had been on the TED stage. They stood on the red dot for real and gave a TED talk. And that's who we're talking to today. His name is Justin Daniels, and I know you are going to enjoy our interview today, just like the Rising Tide Mastermind did. My lab partner today is Justin Daniels, corporate attorney at Baker Donaldson and best-selling author and good friend. How are you, Justin? I'm good, Trace. It's nice to be with you today. How are things shaking? Things are shaking well. Of course, we're both in Atlanta and we're enjoying some uh, humid but cooler weather today. Yes, we are. Well, you know, I was I was thinking back, and uh, you and I met through a mutual public speaking coach, and I'm talking about Des Thornton. And Des has actually been on this show before. He was episode 60, one of my first shows. So we're going to talk a little bit about what you do as an attorney, how we met, the fact that you've been on the TED stage before, and a lot of stuff in between. We've got a lot of things to cover today. I'm ready to go. What's up first? Well, I thought uh, you could probably do a lot better job of explaining Justin Daniels to the Scaling Up Nation than I can. So how would you tell the Scaling Up Nation about who Justin Daniels is? All right. I'll do that in 60 seconds or less. So 
Justin Daniels, myself. Uh, so I am a corporate M&A and tech transaction attorney at the law firm Baker Donaldson. So I work with a lot of technology companies to help them with their bottom line. I help them grow it by handling all their M&A purchase kind of contracts. But I also, where we're going to focus today, I help them with their bottom line managing risk, particularly in the area of cybersecurity and data privacy. And that area in the last 10 years has become one of the major trends in industry, which is the proliferation of data privacy and cybersecurity regulation, but also data breaches. Well, why don't we just go ahead and start there? We're speaking with a bunch of water treaters today. Of course, uh, that's the Scaling Up Nation. And we have controllers out there. We have uh, internet connections, possible cyber risks. And uh, of course, we're talking about water, some municipal water, some other process water. What do we need to know? What should we be concerned about? Well, first things first is water treatment is a capital C critical part of critical infrastructure. And we already saw what happened with water treatment with what happened in Oldsmar, where it appeared that someone was trying to get in and cause the levels of sodium hydroxide to become toxic. What was interesting about that case is it wasn't quite clear as was it some outside kind of actor or was it a disgruntled employee? And so it really brings to the forefront that as sleepy as it may sound, water treatment is on the forefront of concern from a cybersecurity perspective because it can have such widespread and significant consequences. And the other thing that makes it so challenging is it doesn't always get the tender love and care from a budgetary and resource perspective that make it an even more attractive opportunity to make a splash in the worst way of the word, not the pun we would intend. I can't remember the year, but Target was hacked into, and they got into Target's system by navigating through their HVAC system. That's very close to the type of work that we do. So if we're working with a company like Target or any customer, what do we need to do collaboratively to make sure that everyone is safe? Well, let's unpack that a little bit. So what we have to do collaboratively is, one, you need to think about how you vet your vendors. What will they be doing? Part of the challenge with the Target hack is, why did an HVAC vendor need access to Target's network in toto? So one idea is, just give your vendors the minimal access to your network that they need to do their work. A vendor who's handling your HVAC shouldn't have access in your network to your point of sale system where all your credit card data is. But that requires some action, that requires some intention. Other things that you can do is require that your vendors use multi-factor authentication because we're also interconnected these days that your hack allows that threat actor potentially to move on to my network, onto your network. And so people have to realize we're all a bunch of Lego blocks and we're all clasped together and how we do our security can have a ripple effect on the other Legos that we are attached to. Obviously, it can get into a far more technical level, but to me, it's got to be a mindset. When we grew up, Trace, did you think about your parents' 
And did they use a seatbelt? Actually, I grew up in the time where I think they had to use a seatbelt very begrudgingly because the laws were changing. So when my parents grew up, they really didn't do it. But when we, you and I get in a car, I don't even think twice. I put on my seatbelt like it's just part of what you do. Well, why is that? One, we were educated about why your seatbelt can help save lives. And two, the laws changed. And so my point is, how do we get how people view cybersecurity to be very similar to the way that we view our seatbelt? So that when we engage online, we're thinking about password protection. We're thinking about how we expose ourselves to the internet and how we secure ourselves, but we're not there yet. But again, it starts with education. And to me, the key discussion point for your viewers today is, you know, how do I change my mindset and how I think about procuring this vendor, procuring this new system and putting security as part of the design and part of the procurement process instead of saying, ah, we'll worry about that when we have a hack. I know a lot of people are moving off of the the customer's network and they're bringing their own cell phone modem. So they're just able to tap into that. And that's the only thing. I'm assuming that that's a better way to connect. It can be because one of the biggest challenges you have, and I'll use Colonial Pipeline as another utility as an example of this. Public utility has two types of systems. There's your OT, your operational technology, maybe it opens and shuts the water uh, pipes. And then you have your IT that maybe runs your system and network. And what happened a lot of times, and especially in Colonial Pipeline, is when the threat actor got in, it was unclear if they got access to the OT, meaning remotely shutting pipelines and things of that nature. And so when the company didn't know, they had to shut things down. And so again, it's another example of how do you segment your network? Meaning if you're going to have remote access, how do you make sure that remote access is very narrowly tailored to what that person needs to do and limit the access to things like if I'm in billing, why am I accessing or have any access to the people who are able to open and shut valves to move water or to move the kind of treatment for the water? So those are some of the things that you now have to start to think about, and they require time, effort, and resources. And a lot of times for water treatment facilities, they're cash-strapped. So they have to do more with less, and it just makes it difficult. Are there regulations that we need to be aware of? Well, unfortunately, we don't have an overarching cybersecurity rule, but what we do have is we have various privacy laws amongst the states. And most importantly, the SEC in the last two weeks has passed a cybersecurity law making publicly traded companies have to report a data breach within four days of it being deemed a material breach. So now think about uh, companies like a Walmart, AT&T, if you're in their vendor ecosystem, you now have to be paying a lot of attention to that. But, you know, water treatment plants kind of operate Separately, but where it comes into focus for them is requirements that CISA has through the Department of Homeland Security, because again, water treatment facilities are part of critical infrastructure. So they're going to have very strict reporting guidelines because the government wants to know if a water treatment facility is hacked. So they have to be responsive in that particular respect to some of the CISA. So CISA is the um, Critical Infrastructure and Security Agency, they're the division of Department of Homeland Security that is focused on cybersecurity. Critical Infrastructure, again, that's where 
water treatment falls and what they have to pay attention to. Is there a checklist that we can go through to make sure that we're doing all the things that we should be doing? So is there a checklist? I think the place that I might start is the National Institute of Standards and Technology has what's called the Cybersecurity Framework, CSF. So you can Google that, but I think the better way to go is to get a gap analysis done by a vendor and use some resources and budget for that to figure out, okay, what is missing from the standpoint of water treatment plants are really industrial facilities. And so industrial facilities have their own very specific requirements. A lot of them use SCADA type of technology to help them manage pipes and whatnot. And so to me, it's something that is a recognized framework because it helps order your mind. It helps take you through the different types of things that you want to be thinking about, but also getting it tailored to an industrial facility because industrial facilities have previously thought, well, who wants to hack an industrial facility? Well, heck, if I can take down your water pipes so that they don't work or they don't function, and I just want to watch the world burn, that can cause a lot of damage. If a city doesn't have, like, if the city of Atlanta didn't have access to the water, water treatment for a week, what would happen? It'd be a riot. Yeah, it's it's horrible to think about, especially to think about there's people out there that that's just what they want to do. What's wrong with those people? Technology is only as good as the motivations behind the people using it. And we haven't even talked about artificial intelligence because that weaponizes a lot of this stuff. We'll move there in a second. We'll talk about when Skynet goes goes self-aware. Before we get there, you mentioned things like multi-factor authentication, and that's something that we do here at our company. And when we first started doing it, everybody complained about what a pain it was. So it's all about habits. When we're trying to create better habits across the entire company, what are some tips that you have so we can make it a little less painless? I'm glad you brought this up because... Trace, what you're really talking about is, as a society with technology, we worship convenience. And multi-factor authentication and privacy and security are what? They're inconvenient. Just getting people to want to do that is difficult. And so this is where I wish I could be more exciting is where the education part comes in, is people need to be educated that that multi-factor authentication is like getting in your car and putting on your seatbelt. It takes that extra 10 seconds, but we all know seatbelts really help save lives. And so to me, it's that repetitive education, possibly providing incentives and where necessary, some disincentives so that people want to maintain the right kind of, to your point, habits. But habits don't just get ingrained by doing it once. It's like eating right. Good cyber hygiene is kind of like that. So how do you instill in people over time, those habits, I think you do it by incentivizing them. Like if you have phishing and you notice that when you send the phishing emails, less and less people click on it. Maybe you do something like a party for the employees or something so that there's a positive incentive to engaging in the right kind of hygiene so that people scrutinize emails more. They just think of, oh, I use multi-factor authentication because it's my digital seatbelt. That's where I think we have to go. It's just really, again, changing that mindset about how you think about security. I need my digital seatbelt on. That's multi-factor authentication. Well, you brought up AI, 
And I think most of us are familiar with chat GPT and, you know, we need to write a job description. So we throw some things in there. So it definitely does have some benefits, but you said now it becomes weaponizing to some of these hackers. I'm scared to ask this question, but tell us about that. So think about using AI to come up with the best phishing email for the water treatment plant. Think about using AI to figure out the best way to attack a particular water treatment plant. Now you have artificial intelligence that's ingesting data to help you do that. So that's scary on one level. And then I guess on another level, AI hallucinates. It, it's a very convincing liar. So, you know, if people want to go out and, oh, wait a minute, I read online this Trace Blackboard did X, Y, and Z. Well, we're going to fire him from his job. And it's just something AI created and it was false. We're already seeing things like that. My concern about AI is it will be the culmination of congressional abdication of their role to put guardrails around our digital economy. If you think about it, that's really what's happened with cybersecurity. We get into all these different industries. So, Zoom calls, your phone, all these different technologies that don't require cybersecurity be built into it because they want to get market share. They want to make it convenient. So absent regulation or other reasons to put privacy or security by design, companies just think it's an afterthought. And I think you're going to see the same thing play out with AI because the technology is so ahead of the laws. I mean, most people don't realize HIPAA for healthcare. 1996, the Telecom Act for Section 230 that we read about, 1997. And that was before we had cell phones, the internet, and we really haven't passed major legislation to really deal with these things. And so what's gone on? Technology companies see the profit. They're not too worried about uh, the requirements because there really aren't any. And you've seen the results. We've had some good things, no doubt, but we've also seen a lot of unintended, uh, not so great consequences. You mentioned cell phones and of course, uh, convenience, there's an app for everything. And you download an app and it wants all of these permissions to access everything over your phone. How should we be scrutinizing what it can actually see? So as an example, like when I'm using Google Maps, it says, hey, we want to have your location all the time. I was like, no, only when I'm using the app. There's even a function on there that says, hey, you can stop using it. But here's the problem with that. When you get in your car and you want to go somewhere, your car still has navigation that tracks you anyway. And it's really, for a lot of people, inconvenient not to have Google Maps available when they want it, how they want it. Because if you hit a certain feature on your iPhone, you can shut all of that geolocation kind of stuff down, but it comes at the cost of not being able to use the app. And so most people, when push comes to shove, they want to use the app. And that's why there needs to be more education around. And we're getting better about having people understand how much data is being collected and choose when you want to unlock the doors to have someone come into your digital house. When do you give out your cell phone? When do you give out your email? I was at at an outdoor mall up in Alpharetta and I watched a family take a selfie at a digital kiosk and they wanted the picture. The only way to get the picture was you had to give them your cell phone. But the kiosk doesn't tell you what it's doing with that information, where it's going, how it's being protected. Could you imagine getting ads for all kinds of stuff you don't want on your cell phone? That makes a lot of people mad. 
Are there certain things that everybody should do on their cell phones to make things a little safer? So you can go into, and I'll use iPhone as an example, you can go into general settings under privacy, and there are things that you can click on to enhance privacy. If you go all the way, as I said before, you won't have access to Google Maps when you want it, but you can go into your iPhone and toggle some of these things in privacy to give you privacy-enhancing features on your phone. It just comes at a cost of access to things that people use like they are water. I remember I downloaded a timer so I could uh, be on stage and know how much time I had left. And it said, we want your camera, we want your contacts, we want your texting. I'm like, it's a timer. What does it need that for? So you say no. And they want all that because, you know, they want to market to you and do these other things. And you should just say no. Just say no. The Nancy Reagan approach. I'm going back to good old Nancy and I I don't need my (laughs) astrologer, but I'm just going to say no to giving you access to that information. So I introduced you as best-selling author. Tell us about your book. So my book, well, I co-authored the book with my wife, Jody, and it came out last October. It's called Data Reimagined, Building Trust One Byte, B-Y-T-E, at a Time. And the whole premise of the book was to write something in a style that was engaging, that really spoke to business executives who are not technical cyber privacy geeks. And the point of the book was, how can they think differently about privacy and cybersecurity and look at it as a way to build customer trust? All the examples you just gave me, Trace, about, I just wanted to have a timer to work on my speeches and they want access to my contacts and all that. Does that build trust with Trace the consumer? Not at all. It doesn't. So maybe another way to approach it is to say, okay, how can we do other things with privacy to really enhance trust with consumer trace or business executive trace? And so we got into a a lot of different areas because in our society nowadays, how you treat people's data is now by extension, how you treat them. And I think that's just the reality of the way it is today. Writing a book is something I have always aspired to doing. I have not done that yet. It is on my list. Any advice? Well, you have to be ready to really be committed. And to me, there's no good time to write a book because it takes a lot of effort. And so you just have to decide that you're going to do it. Uh, It was a wonderful experience. Being able to do that with my wife and collaborate with her was a lot of fun. But there's no good time to do it. If it's on your bucket list to do at some point, you just got to say, I just got to get started and get the ball rolling. We did it working with a firm that helped us with a ghostwriter and helped put a process in place. Because I think without those things, if you're a busy executive, the process can be very daunting. Well, you recently were our keynote speaker with the Rising Tide Mastermind. We had our live events in uh, Alpharetta, Georgia, just a few months ago. And you came and you spoke to us around being on the TED stage. So I was hoping we could talk a little bit about that. You've given a full-fledged TED Talk. You've been on the red dot. How did that happen? So the way that happened, uh, again, relating to cybersecurity is I was asked to do it because I headlined a week in Atlanta called Atlanta Cyber Week. And so the TEDx Atlanta people came to me and said, hey, would you come and do a TED Talk on cybersecurity? And for about a nanosecond, I thought, I'm going to 
MC all these events and at the end of the week do a TED talk. And then after that nanosecond, it was, hell yeah, I'm going to do this. And so uh, I went down that path. And all I can say to any listener out there, if you ever have the opportunity or the inclination to do it, you should, because it is such a bucket list experience in that I've never, as an adult, been in a room with 700 people who are absolutely cheering you on to give like the best talk ever. It's such a room full of positive energy that you just gravitate towards it. It just fills you up. And that was what made the experience so special. I learned a ton about public speaking and it made me a better speaker. It made me fearless. Like if I had to show up tomorrow to speak on cybersecurity in front of a thousand people, I could do it and not feel intimidated at all. Can't speak highly enough of the opportunity. And I know we had a long conversation elaborating at that, the talk that I gave with, with your mastermind groups. So speaking of the mastermind, just to keep the Scaling Up Nation up to date on what we're talking about, we had an assignment and the assignment was everybody came to the live event and they had to do a 10-minute TED Talk. And it could be on absolutely any topic. And what we did is uh, we started out with, I gave my TED Talk. And then we uh, broke up into our individual groups, and then the groups listened to their TED Talks, and they nominated one person from each group to come back to the big stage where we did have a red dot, and they all gave their TED Talks. And then you came in, you gave a great TED Talk on what you learned from your TED Talk and gave us some great tips as well. I'm putting you on the spot here. Do you remember some of those tips that you can share with the Scaling Up Nation? I do remember some of those tips. I think number one was authenticity is really important. Everyone's style is different. I can't, I shouldn't be Trace. Trace shouldn't be Justin. And so you have to really figure out what style works for you. Another tip that I gave is when you feel confident enough is every opportunity you get in a presentation where it makes sense is inject humor into it. Humor is such a devastatingly effective public speaking tool because everyone loves to laugh. It makes you feel good to laugh and it increases your connection to the audience. And I think the last one is don't be afraid to push your boundaries. So Trace, since you and I last spoke, I have three presentations this fall on artificial intelligence. I have yet to do one on artificial intelligence, and now I'm going to have to figure out how to make a complicated topic accessible. And it will be a challenge, but you know what? I figured it out before, so I'm going to push the boundaries and, and do it again. I'm sure I won't be perfect the first few times, but that's okay. Well, you and I definitely need to get together because since we spoke last time, I was selected as the keynote speaker for the International Water Conference, and I've got a lot of questions for you to make sure I do my best job. Call me anytime and happy to be a resource because remember, in the run-up to mine, you came and you gave me some really helpful feedback. And so the more effort you put into practicing and actually doing it in front of select people to get feedback... It will always help you think about new things and connect in a better way with your audience when you do do the presentation. That's why preparation is so important to have a successful talk. I remember you mentioned that to our group and you said, 
you practice enough that you almost over-practice and it just becomes second nature. How do you know when you've done that to that effect? Ah, well, I think that's different for everybody, but I think I did it out of, I'm going to go into a stage in front of 700 people. And if I get up there and I'm nervous, which as you know, as I told everyone at the event, I was nervous. That's what I fell back on. The fact that I had so done it many times, I'd committed it to the point where it was just part of me. It's like how I can go talk about cybersecurity. It just becomes part of you and it, it's, it can be very authentic because it's just coming out of you very conversationally because you just know it. And when you feel that, you gain the confidence from it. So when you go out on a stage like that and you're not familiar with getting in front of a little red dot in front of 700 people, I felt like I could always rely on that. I think I read a great quote where people fall to their highest level of preparation. And in that instance, I wanted to make sure that I felt like I was prepared, but I think that's different for everybody, but that's what I did. And it worked for me. Now, can you do that for every talk that you give? You cannot. That's why I tend to do a lot of my presentations in areas that I'm already familiar and why this venture I'm going to do into AI will be different. I'll have to do more practice and whatnot because it is a newer area and I got to figure out how to get comfortable with distilling that kind of complicated stuff into something accessible to most business people. A theme that you shared with us was you use every day in your job things that you learn from your TED Talk experience. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. I think the number one thing that I use in my job every day that's always a work in progress is what I call 738-55 rule. So what that means is how people respond to you is 7% what you say, 38% how you say it, and 55% your body language. And so what I use every day is I, I'm a professional negotiator, so my tone is very important. I can say the same thing, but if my tone is different, the way it gets perceived is very different. And so some people can be perfectly nice. You have to get to know them. Oh, that's just how they are, which is another way of saying there may be something that is off-putting about them, but you choose to overlook it because you get to know them. But in certain contexts, if you're trying to make a sale, you may not get the opportunity for that person to get to know you. So how you conduct yourself, uh, body language, your tone are incredibly important because most people think, oh, I've I've, I've practiced and I can get up there and say it. But no, this whole universe of your tonal inflection, how you use your body language becomes as important or in most instances, more important than what you say. I mentioned earlier, you and I met uh, by a mutual friend, our, our public speaking coach, Des Thornton, and uh, he's been on the show episode 60. I wanted to ask you, what was it like to have a public speaking coach and what were some of the things that he took you through? So I was grateful that I had one because I didn't know at the time they were worried about me because I had to talk about a technical topic and how was I going to make it accessible. So they gave me an actual public speaking coach. And so it was great because he opened my mind to the two parts of the tone and more importantly, your body language. And so one of the cool things he did was 
he videotaped me and he took away the sound and I just watched myself and he was able to show me how much you were communicating. And it was just really eye opening. And so I would tell the audience, you know, you've got an iPhone. You can always do that just to see how you motion and you see how much your body language can communicate enthusiasm or lack thereof or other things and how important um, facial expressions are. Or when I want to say three things, I hold up three fingers and how that helps you connect with the audience. So it, it was that. And then the other thing is, is to, to make a public speaking coach really be effective, you have to be open to being coachable. And one thing that I take pride in is no matter how old I've gotten, I'm open to learning new things, new ways of doing things. And I think with public speaking, that's incredibly important because the job of your coach is to identify, as Des would say, opportunities for improvement. That says something about his approach. It's not like you were bad, but here's some opportunities where you can get better. The way you even couch that sounds uh, positive, even though you're trying to improve. And if you're not willing to do that and you're not open to that, then your your experience is going to be really limited because if you're not willing to try something different or learn to do something a new way and put in the time to make it a habit, you're, you're not going to get the result you're looking for. It'll be money spent that doesn't get you the result. And working with Des, he also had me record myself and uh, I sent it to him and he asked me if I was trying to land planes. And he said, he said, you, you only use your gestures. And I speak with my hands. I had to learn not to do that. He said, you use your hands to punctuate what you are saying. And when I spoke at our live event doing the TED Talk, I had a couple people come up to me and said, hey, when you've presented at Association of Water Technologies Conference, you used your hands a lot and you're not doing that. How did you become aware of that? And of course, it was that experience. It sounds like he wasn't as delicate with me as he was with you with that experience. Maybe just we had different things to work on, but it was really getting me to, you know, use things in different ways. Like I learned how to, you know, hey, I want you to focus and I would do this or three, I would do this, just different ways. And so now I go on stage, I'm more comfortable walking around a little bit. I'm more comfortable with my tone, but I can't get there if I haven't really practiced doing the other things because you have to have the foundation to start really working on these nuances that take you from good to being a fantastic public speaker because I'm sure like you, I have pretty high expectations of myself. When I show up in Alpharetta, I'm ready to go and you're going to get a good experience because that's the brand that I want to have. But to get to that level, you've got to work on those basics again, again, and again. Yeah, I highly recommend that uh, everybody engage with somebody to help them speak publicly, even if you're not doing a speech. I mean, we're speaking with people all the time. And if we're able to get less gray in our communication and uh, use words that people understand and use gestures that help people understand, that just makes life better. Absolutely. Justin, something that's going on in the water treatment community is a lot of people are retiring. They're figuring out what to do for their second chapter and who's going to run their company. Are they going to sell it? Are they going to uh, work with a family member? So there's all sorts of transitions going on in our industry. I know you are an M&A attorney. I'm sure you have some advice for us. 
lot to unpack there. So advice that I would have is before you're going to sell, you really want to get your ducks in a row. And what I mean by that is if you've got, you're paying for personal cars, personal expenses, all that needs to get dealt with. You want to go through your own due diligence so that whatever issues you uncover, you uncover them and you fix them so that when the buyer goes through the diligence process, it's relatively smooth. Now, Trace, if you or you're assisting someone in buying a company, a lot of what I talked about before with some of these cyber risks really becomes important. You're going to want to do due diligence because if you're inheriting a water treatment plant or facility that has bad cybersecurity, you are potentially inheriting a really big liability that could be far in excess what you paid for the business. I have seen instances where people pay $2 million for a business and there was an undetected cyber threat in the business. And once the network's connected from the buyer to the target, threat actor waltzes right across to the buyer, encrypts their network, and ransoms them for $10 million. So now the $2 million you paid is nothing compared to the liability that you might have. I have seen some really interesting things with due diligence, like buying a water treatment plant that's part of its warehouse is sitting in a public utility right away because the seller, when they built it, didn't get a survey to know where the easements were. I had another instance where my client decided, hey, we're going to take care of the wire at closing. And they wired about $750,000 to the threat actor. So I got a call on a Saturday morning. What do we do? And I was able to contact the Secret Service and have them initiate the kill chain and freeze the funds over the weekend so the client didn't lose the money. So those are just a few of the little things. And as my client likes to say, I'm a man with a certain set of skills is what they said. If somebody would like to talk to you more about those skills, how can they contact you? A great way to get a hold of me is you can go on the Baker Donaldson website, B-A-K-E-R-D-O-N-E-L-S-O-N.com, and you can find my bio. But you can also easily find me on LinkedIn. I'm a regular uh, poster and commenter. So feel free to connect with me there. I write all kinds of stuff, but I'm always up for a good conversation, particularly one in the technology or cybersecurity area. We will make sure to have all ways to contact you on our show notes page so people can easily find that. Well, this has been fun, but I'm not quite done yet. I've got a few lightning round questions for you. Are you ready? Hit me. All right. If you could go back in time and talk to your former self on your first day as an attorney, what advice would you give yourself? I would tell them, relax. It's not a destination. It's a journey. And focus on building really good relationships with people and don't focus as much on the work. What are the last few books that you've read? Last few books that I've read. So I've read a couple books, one about the Lakers when Phil Jackson coached them, another one about the 1986 Mets, and then I read a series of three books about what would happen if some type of event happened in the U.S. was out without power or some of these kind of apocalyptic kind of events occurred. And so I read a series of books on that. I vacillate into different areas. I love to read. So I'm always constantly reading something. Obviously, Hollywood is going to hear this podcast and they're going to want to make a movie about your life. Who plays Justin in that movie? 
Who plays Justin? I don't know. Christian Bale probably could play me pretty well. He's such a versatile actor. He's Batman. Yeah, he is Batman. That was a great movie or series of movies, by the way. Final question. If you could talk to anybody throughout history, who to be with and why? You know, I, I thought about that. It would be pretty interesting to talk to somebody like President Eisenhower because he was such an important historical figure. And I suspect the way the record has him is a little different than the way he was. So he would be somebody that would be interesting to talk to because I just love history. And he comes to mind as somebody who was a real important figure in the 20th century in presidential politics, as a general, just as a person. Be interested to maybe have a round of golf with Augusta with Ike. Well, Justin, this has been very educational. Thank you for coming on this Scaling Up H2O podcast. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Nation, Justin is like a Swiss army knife. He has so many talents, and he's definitely somebody that you want on your speed dial because if you're having any of the issues that he mentioned, he is the expert and I am so glad that I know him. And I know him because I put myself in groups like the Rising Tide Mastermind, like other groups, because I don't know what I don't know. And I've said that phrase so many times on this podcast, but I love that phrase. And I did not know that phrase until it was introduced to me by my mentor, Tim Fulton. And Tim just asked me, Trace, how do you know what you don't know? And I thought about that question because that was a pretty bold question to ask. And I said, I don't know. And ever since I heard that phrase, that has been the catalyst for me to go out and learn. But more importantly, it gave me permission to not know things. We're all embarrassed for the things that we don't know. But let's face it, there's so much information out there how could you possibly know everything? There's no way. So don't get embarrassed if you don't know something. But if you put yourself in different opportunities where people are that know things that you don't, and I've been doing that for decades, that is one of the single most helpful pieces of advice that somebody gave me that I needed to join a group of people that could teach me what I didn't know I didn't know. And here's the cool thing. When you find out what you don't know you don't know, you now know you don't know it, and you can figure out how you can learn it. That whole idea was the spark behind this podcast, and I have learned so much over the years doing this podcast just like I have met so many people doing this podcast. There was a quote by Henry Ford, and he was actually being deposed, and the opposing counsel was basically calling him a bad businessman because he didn't know everything about business. And he said, no, 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 that's okay, because I have a telephone on my desk, and I have all these numbers of people that know the things that I don't know, and I can call them. That's how we're supposed to do life. There's no way we can learn everything, but we can get together with other people, and we can find that knowledge. And let's face it, when we do something like that, 
we get further faster while we're having more fun. I'll tell you a fun way to learn, and that's a brand new Periodic Water Table with James. Hello and welcome to the Periodic Water Table with James, where we think and learn about water chemistry drop by drop. Please use your week to search online, ask your colleagues, or even pick up a book to learn more about each week's periodic water table topic. If you do, at the end of the year, you'll be 52 water chemistry smarter. So let's raise the water table of knowledge together and get started. Today's topic is ATP. What do the letters ATP stand for? How do cells use ATP? How do you test for ATP? Why would you want to test for ATP? Is it found only in living cells, or can it be found in dead cells too? Does this distinction matter? Can the concentration of ATP be correlated to plate counts of microorganisms? When cleaning a system, what do changes in the ATP concentration tell you? Lastly, I have a joke. A cell goes into a bar. The bartender asks, what can I get you? The cell replies, I'll have a pint of adenosine triphosphate. The bartender says, Aha, that'll be 80p. Get it? 80p, 80p, 80 pence, 80p? Oh well, I won't quit my day job, I promise. Remember, knowledge is power, and taking the time to learn more about water chemistry each week will help make you a force to be reckoned with. Be sure to post what you learned to social media and tag it with hashtag watertable23 and hashtag scalinguph2o. I look forward to learning more from you. Nation, once again, I want to thank everybody that helped us celebrate our sixth Industrial Water Week. It was the strongest yet. Thank you to everybody that sent a social media post to hashtag IWW23. Thank you to everybody that celebrated with me at the Association of Water Technologies Conference. And folks, I hope you start planning for Industrial Water Week next October 7th through 11th. You don't have to wait that long for a brand new episode, though. I'm going to bring you a brand new one next Friday. Until then, have a great week, folks. Skyline Nation, have you signed up to take your Certified Water Technologist designation exam? If you have, you've received a mock exam copy, and I have answered each one of the questions in that mock exam, letting you know which ones are the best answers. I share tips and tricks about the exam, making sure that you sign up easily and confidently. And when you go in to take the examination, you have got certain things working for you because you're prepared. To find out more, go to scalinguph2o.com forward slash CWT prep. Once again, that's scalinguph2o.com forward slash CWT prep.